Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, there's an unusual case before Connecticut State Supreme Court that focuses on frozen embryos. Should frozen embryos be seen as property or as people? More on that story just ahead. First, more than one million Americans are living with HIV-AIDS in the U.S. Overall, the number of people who contract the disease has declined since the virus was first discovered. But certain populations like black and Hispanic bisexual and gay men are disproportionately affected. This despite increased HIV-AIDS awareness efforts and a prevention pill on the market known as Truvada. The medication dramatically decreases an individual's chance of contracting HIV. As the drug's high cost kept it from reaching the people who need it the most, it's something Congress has considered, and the increasing attention on the high cost of the pill has led to more scrutiny of the manufacture of the drug. For more on this story, joining us by phone is Ed Silverman, senior writer and PharmaLot columnist at Stat News. Ed, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us more about the drug manufacturer. I'm sure uh, listeners have heard of Truvada, but may not know a lot about Gilead, the drug manufacturer. Well, Gilead Sciences has been around for quite a while, and it built its uh, it built its business on uh, HIV drugs uh, in the early going. It's since racked up tremendous sales for with products for hepatitis C, uh, but more recently, it's been in the news for HIV. And so, Truvada, when did that come on the market? Uh, it was approved by the Food and Drug Administration in 2004 to treat HIV, uh, but then the FDA approved the pill for yet another use in 2012 uh, for prevention, specifically. And uh, it's, it's, a prophyla- it's called prophylaxis uh, prevention, or PrEP, P-R-E-P. Sometimes it's, uh, the pill Truvada is called interchangeably PrEP, uh, as well as the uh, brand name Truvada. And so uh, since the, the pill has been on the market for some time, why is the company under scrutiny now related to not only pricing, but also uh, maybe anti-competitive deals that have been uh, made to increase the profits for Tru- Truvada? Well, it's really, it's really a case where the um, criticism of the company has been there for several years, but it's been building more recently. The criticism really started over over pricing the uh the the pill when it was first approved for treatment in 2004 the the wholesale cost for a month's supply was 650 dollars by the time it was approved for hiv prevention eight years later in 2012 the price had jumped the wholesale price jumped to about 1100 plus dollars but with no competition really um there was no discounting so during that time, there was this tool that could be used to help thwart the virus, but AIDS activists have cl- claimed and criticized the company for the pricing because they argue that the pricing made it out of reach for some people. It was an access issue. Here you have a medicine that could do the job and do it well, but not everybody could gain access. And as a result, 
as I mentioned, that criticism has been intensifying over the past few months to the point where, um, or actually over the past couple of years, but a lot more so lately. But AIDS activists have taken different tactics to um, try to convince Gilead to alter its pricing. And I could tell you about each of those tactics, if you'd like. Well, I, I wanted to focus in more on the cost. Uh, it costs up to $2,000 a month here in the U.S., but abroad, uh, when people are using uh, Truvada, how much are they paying? Yes, well, I mentioned it's about 1100 or so in 2012. It's now about 1700 in, in the U.S. for a month's supply. And overseas, it's it's a fraction of the cost. It's, it's well under $100. Uh, but there are also generic av- versions available in, in other countries. So that is another mitigating circumstance. So the patent is still protected here in the U.S., and, and Gilead is uh, able to sell it at this price because of that? Yes, and the patent, the patenting is a big issue as part of this larger overall discussion. The, uh, the product was developed in part with grants, federal grants, academic researchers had federal grants that were used to uh, do some research, and these patents are held by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Um, the, the, the issue, as the AIDS activists uh, argue, is that the CDC has these patents in the U.S., but hasn't tried to enforce their rights and collect royalties from Gilead that could be used to uh, for a public health purpose, specifically to eradicate the virus. Meanwhile, in Europe, um, there were challenges to the patents, and um, as a result, um, Mylan, one of the world's largest drug makers, um, has the right to sell generic versions in Europe, several European countries, Canada and Australia. But Mylan is paying royalties to CDC. And the AIDS community, the AIDS activists, are incensed by this dichotomy. Mm-hmm. CDC holds patents in the U.S. but doesn't collect royalties, yet does collect royalties from a generic maker elsewhere. So as a result, again, there isn't enough money for public health purposes here. Mm-hmm. I understand that Gilead's uh, CEO testified before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform last week. Uh, what happened at that hearing, Ed? <laughs> Well, it was um, it was part of a strategy the AIDS activists have tried to implement over the past couple of years. They've tried to convince the National Institutes of Health to override patents. As I mentioned, they've tried to get NIH, which oversees the CDC, to collect royalties from Gilead. They have been uh, hammering at the company over price. The hearing before the, over- the House Oversight Committee on Government Reform was part of the strategy to raise that profile, the profile of the issue still higher because most people are not necessarily aware of patenting and pricing issues if you're not attuned to the, the, the HIV issue specifically. So this is a chance for the AIDS community to get the issue front and center before a committee, a House committee that in general has been very active on pricing, drug pricing mm-hmm. in general, that is. Uh, there were some interesting in, uh, exchanges between uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and this uh, Gilead CEO. Uh, she really stressing that uh, the public helped, taxpayers helped fund these clinical trials, uh, these grants to help develop the drug. Uh, what is Gilead CEO saying regarding uh, the government's patent? 
Well, Gilead, he, Daniel O'Day, the Gilead chief executive, repeated remarks that the company has been issuing for a number of weeks, which is the company contends the patents are invalid. And therefore, um, there's no no claim, but the company has also not filed. They've conceded they've not filed a legal challenge concerning the patent. So uh, the issue remains unclear and un- unresolved as a result. Meanwhile, Gilead has tried to blunt some of this criticism, and um, O'Day mentioned this during the testimony, because he was the focus of a lot of the uh, remarks, as you can imagine, not just from any one lawmaker, but several Democratic lawmakers on the committee Thursday. And Gilead's tried to blunt the criticism by offering a donation program, donating a lot of uh, its Truvada for maybe 200,000 patients over 11 years. But that's also encountered criticism. And then uh, what are the plans or in terms of will this become generic uh, in a few years here in the U.S. so that the cost will come down, Ed? Sure. Well, I should mention that one criticism of Gilead with donation is that the manufacturing costs are low. So AIDS activists say manufacturing costs are so low, why can't you just lower the price? And they say, well, the donation is great, but let's not forget Gilead gets a tax break for the donation. So it's still making a profit. And it will continue to do so for the next um, year and a half before a generic version of Truvada is available in this country. It's a few months earlier than most folks had planned, but um, that's simply because details of the agreement between Gilead and one big generic company were not previously known. Uh, but meanwhile, Gilead is hoping that even as a generic becomes available, the generic version of Truvada becomes available, there'll be a follow-up drug that it's developing that will be uh, equally, if not more effective, and also have longer patent protection. So it's there's a criticism that the company is being cynical in trying to blunt criticism with donations. Well, it benefits from manufacturing costs that are low, so it still makes a profit, and it gets tax breaks, and meanwhile positions itself to eventually market uh, a more effective pill uh, that has patent protection going forward a number of years uh, more so than So this has been going on, again, uh, criticism over the last few years, but uh, coming to a head with that congressional hearing. You also reported uh, last week the Trump administration uh, has backed off a controversial Medicare drug pricing proposal that would have impacted um, if uh, drugs for conditions like depression and AIDS were even covered. What's happened with that now, Ed? Well, the Trump administration was looking at trying to uh, loosen uh, requirement for government health care programs to cover um, certain dr- uh, certain conditions or diseases, including AIDS. The, the, the administration thought was if the uh, program did not have to cover this, then it wouldn't have to pay a certain price or would uh, implement more restrictive uh, steps before coverage could begin. And not surprisingly, a lot of patient groups uh, got very upset about that because one of the one of the uh, restrictions might have been something called step therapy. You try one drug before you try another drug, and and that is an impediment for many people for different reasons. Maybe the one drug you're first required to try doesn't work as well. Maybe you're on another drug, and you're, the switching is not beneficial to your treatment. Uh, ultimately, the administration backed off. It just wasn't viable. I'm not surprised, but. Um, it's just one more example where the administration, I think, is uh, struggling 
to come up with a, a viable approach to the overall issue of drug pricing, not just for HIV medicine. Ed Silverman, a senior writer and pharmalot columnist at Stat News, uh, joining us today uh, to talk more about um, scrutiny of the drug manufacturer of Truvada and uh, how much they're making here in the U.S. Ed, thank you for your time. We're going to tweet out some links uh, to your stories at Where We Live. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, again, we were hearing more about uh, the scrutiny uh, against uh, Gilead, who manufactures Truvada. Uh, we wanted to uh, get some local perspective on this, as well as HIV-AIDS uh, prevention in our state. So joining me now in studio is Sean Lang, Deputy Director of AIDS Connecticut. Sean, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, always. So could you respond to this uh, last uh, story that we were learning about with Gilead? Um, Again, we heard uh, members of Congress, even members of the public, questioning um, the fact that this is so costly, Truvada, uh, in the U.S., that it's keeping people um, from getting uh, access to it that could prevent uh, new HIV infections. Uh, Do we know how many people have access to Truvada or PrEP in this country? We don't. Um, You know, and I think there's multiple layers to this. Obviously, the cost can be a barrier for people, particularly for people who are uninsured or underinsured although Gilead does have um, patient assistance programs. And I think a larger problem, too, is that, you know, the, the medical community um, often either doesn't know how to or isn't comfortable with doing a comprehensive sexual health history with their patients to determine if somebody would be a good candidate for PrEP or not. You know, we have this great tool, and I love that Ed used the words uh, tool because we use that in the harm reduction community all the time, having tools in our toolbox for HIV prevention, and whether, you know, it's syringe services, which we've been doing for over 20 years, and it's a very evidence-based and effective program, <clears throat> excuse me, or having PrEP available um, for folks. Uh, you know, and I think the one other layer to this, too, is that people who might be good candidates for PrEP may not even know about PrEP, that it is it exists to help them protect themselves. Because I think, you know, in the early days of HIV prevention, and I've been around for long enough to remember these days, you know, it was all condoms, 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 which are great. And we still recommend that people use condoms and have access to those. Um, but now we have this great tool mm-hmm. that helps prevent uh, the spread of infection that can really help turn the tide um, to end this epidemic, which is really our ultimate goal. Uh, we keep saying PrEP again, pre-exposure, prophylaxis. Re- remind us again how it works if someone has a prescription for a Truvada. Yep. So it, the, the beauty of it, <clears throat> it's one pill a day. Um, so it's not like, you know, again, I remember the old days of HIV and people would just have like pill boxes, pill boxes, pill boxes all over the place. This is one pill a day. Um, and what happens is if you and your provider determine that you're a good candidate for PrEP, you get your prescription, but you go back to your provider every three months and you get tested for sexually transmitted infections, you get tested for HIV, you receive counseling, and then they determine whether you go on PrEP for another three months because it can be kind of an episodic thing. It might not be something that you're going to take over your lifetime, but something that you're going to be taking for a certain period in your life. Uh, when we hear about uh, these HIV prevention uh, pills on the market and available, also uh, the death rates from HIV AIDS declining uh, considerably since uh, the virus was first uh, discovered, uh, is there a perception when there are these tools, as you say, uh, that you know that there's not a lot of emphasis on uh, getting the word out uh, and people think it may not be much of an issue these days? Yeah, <clears throat> I think that is the public perception. You know, like 
um, we used to use the saying, um, AIDS isn't over, it's all over Connecticut. And it, it's still in, in our lives. Like, you know, For those of us who are in the thick of it, um, you know, we see this every day. We see people becoming newly infected. Um, but as you said, it's not like it was back in the early to mid-80s up to the mid-90s. Uh, in the mid-90s is when the um, medications came out, the combination therapies came out that really helped manage HIV disease. Um, but the fact remains is that it's, it is still with us. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, we primarily see new infections among young uh, men who have sex with men, that's the CDC's uh, title for that. But young men who have sex with men, primarily black and Latino uh, kids who are getting infected. And, you know, there's a whole combination of things, I think, that uh, go into that. You know, one, we don't have comprehensive, age-appropriate, evidence-based um, sexual education in schools. You know, here in Connecticut, we have our 169 fiefdoms, um, and each of those school districts determine what happens, you know, what happens there. Um, so we need that kind of education to happen for, for our youth, um, and and not just heteronormative sex ed, too. You know, as most many people know, I have a son who went through the Hartford Public School System, and their sex ed uh, education was like a one-shot deal, and it was very heteronormative. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, you know, do they talk about condoms? And he said, yeah. And I said, did they tell you how to use them? And he said, no. And I was like, well, what's mm-hmm. the point in talking about condoms if they don't explain how to use them and how they work and why they're important? Um, so we don't have that. What about the conversations that doctors are having or not having uh, with patients? What needs to change there, Sean? I think it's not having. Um I was recently um, with a few other folks on a panel at UConn School of Medicine talking to um, residents about uh, LGBT health issues. And one of the things I did talk about is learn how to do comprehensive sexual health assessment with your patients. Get comfortable with that because one size doesn't fit all. You know, I talked about, uh, I told them a story about a friend of mine who had cancer and she had to have a stem cell transplant. So you know, your your immune system rebuilds itself after that. And she was talking to her provider, and she said to the provider, um, can I have sex? And the provider said, yes. And my friend said, wrong answer. You didn't ask me what kind of sex I have, who I have it with, how often I have it. You know, this is a much broader conversation. So, you know, and, you know, this was, a, you know, a, an oncologist who should know about, you know, what the options are for people. And, you know, and I think more and more, there's a lot of people whose, um, you know, sexual expression is more fluid. Um, you know, for some of us, it's set in stone, but for other people, mm-hmm. it is more fluid. So those conversations are really, really important to have. Sean Lang, again, is Deputy Director of AIDS Connecticut. When we look at infection rates specifically in Connecticut, what does the the picture show of people who are most affected and areas of the population where more work needs to be done, whether it's prevention efforts or even getting uh, knowledge about PrEP? Yeah. um, In Connecticut, uh, what we've seen over, say, the past 15 years or so is a real reversal about who's becoming newly infected. Fifteen years ago, it was primarily people who injected drugs and were sharing syringes. But we instituted syringe services programs um, in the early 90s, and they've completely reversed the tide of new infections among people who inject drugs. Um, But what we've seen 
happen is that newly infected people are, again, younger men who have sex with men, primarily black and Latino um, folks. And so I think the prevention uh, work that folks do all across the state um, is is more challenging. I mean, back in the olden days, we used to go to bars and hand out condoms and talk to people. We don't have those hubs for, you know, gay folks anymore. There's very few gay bars mm-hmm. left. People are on the apps. It's all social media. People are meeting folks and then, you know, maybe meeting at just a regular local uh, bar or pub. Um, so we don't have those hubs. So we have staff that are on the apps, you know, putting out information about PrEP, putting out information about do you know your HIV status? Because very often people aren't getting tested regularly. Even though the CDC recommended routine testing in 2006, that's not happening, we hear anecdotally. So when people do finally get tested, they're what we call late testers. And so they get an HIV diagnosis, and then within a year they get an AIDS diagnosis. And in this day and age, that doesn't need to happen anymore. You mentioned they're not being hubs anymore. What about when we think about Connecticut residents in rural areas, our northwest and northeast parts of our state? That's Again, that's even more challenging. I mean, we have um, sparser populations of people living with HIV in those areas, um, and there are fewer services out there. Uh, we heard recently um, colleagues of ours, APEX, uh, they used to be AIDS Project Greater Danbury, are going to branch out into Torrington, uh, which would be terrific. Um, you know, we're out in uh, Manchester, um, so we cover kind of all of Tallinn County, so we're able to reach people there. But it's definitely much more challenging in the rural areas. Uh, again, uh, you're with AIDS Connecticut. This week, uh, there's going to be a rally in Hartford uh, to coincide with AIDS Awareness Day. Uh, talk a little bit about that before we run out of time and also what you hope to see the legislature do to help uh, groups like AIDS Connecticut do its work. So this is going to be our 19th annual AIDS Awareness Day. So I'm pretty psyched about that. And we have a great lineup of speakers of people who are living with HIV and AIDS, many of whom are long-term survivors. Uh, we have Hartford's Poet Laureate, uh, Frederick Douglass Knowles is going to be with us. He usually comes and hangs out with us. Uh, he's pretty incredible. Um, and it's really, again, to make sure that HIV and AIDS is on the radar screen of legislators and public officials. Uh, we don't want it to slip off. There's a whole crop of new legislators up there this session. We have a new governor, new administration. So we want to make sure that they're aware of HIV and AIDS. And our message this year is really to thank those who've supported us for uh, so many years and to educate new legislators um, and to thank people for their support. Um, You know, our funding is fairly stable right now. And I say that very cautiously because, you know, things can change. But, um, you know, we just again, it's about raising awareness and keeping it on the radar screen. Sean Lang, again, Deputy Director of AIDS Connecticut, will have a link on our website to learn more about her organization and that rally that we just mentioned. Sean, always a pleasure. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me again, Lucy. Appreciate it. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, after the break, one-third of Americans have used fertility treatments to know someone who has. We're going to learn about a case in Connecticut that's raised questions about what happens to a frozen embryo when a couple divorces. Don't miss a conversation, and you can join us too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As people from both sides of the abortion debate focus on the latest states that seek to pass laws banning abortion, a quieter debate has been playing out in some courts, including in Connecticut, over the question of whether a frozen embryo should be viewed as property or as a person. Nicole Leonard is with me now to explain. She's healthcare reporter for WNPR Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, uh, frozen embryos, the focus of this uh, recent uh, state Supreme Court case, um, the question being what happens if uh, the couple divorces? Tell us about the couple that, that's the focus of this particular uh, suit. Yeah. So the couple in Connecticut, they, um, they were once married and uh, they decided to expand their family that they would um, create embryos. Uh, so you go through the sort of a in vitro fertilization process, and then um, they created two embryos, and they are cryogenically preserved. Um, they did have a daughter from from one of those embryos, and now another embryo is left. Um, but the relationship has ended, so they've gone through divor- through a divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one thing that they haven't been able to settle on is what to do with this embryo. How is it going to mm-hmm. play out? And so uh, within the couple, uh, it was the ex-wife who wanted it to be destroyed. And the husband, the ex-husband said, no, I want to keep it around. Right. He wants to preserve it. And uh, originally he said, you know, I want to preserve it because maybe we could use it if we reconcile at some point. Um, And and according to court documents, she was like, that's not going to happen. And she wants it uh, destroyed or discarded. And and that's common in a lot of uh, contracts and and agreements when we're talking about embryos um, that uh, that they agree to discard mm-hmm. embryos that they don't use. I mentioned uh, in the top of the show that about uh, one third of Americans know someone uh, that has uh, tried assisted reproductive therapy or have done it themselves. And so, what have you learned about how many frozen embryos actually exist here in the U.S. in these particular clinics? Yeah, there's an estimated one million uh, embryos frozen in the United States right now. That's a lot. Um, and we're not even talking about frozen eggs or sperm. That's other things that people can cryogenically preserve um, for fertility treatments in the future. So medical technology has gotten so much better that people are looking at this as an option to expand their families and plan for the future. And you have some people who do it because um, they you know, maybe are aging or they're at the point where they aren't sure they're going to produce maybe enough eggs, especially women. Um, They're having children later and later. So they want to preserve the option to have children, even if it's at a later age. So what they do is they freeze embryos or sperm or eggs and they're able to do it later on in life. Um, And it also actually helps people who have medical conditions like cancer or um, a chronic illness that may cause them to be infertile. And so if they can preserve these things earlier on, they have a better chance of actually having children later on. Is this an option uh, for everyone that struggles with uh, fertility or trying to make uh, decisions now that impact them later, considering is it costly to have these embryos stored for who knows how long? Right. I mean, ideally, it would be an option for everyone. But of course, there's this is not cheap. This is not a cheap option. You have to pay to go through IVF. Um, you have to extract the right 
things. Then you have to pay to have them put together and, and form an embryo. And then you have to pay to have them preserved. You also have to pay to go through the entire process of having that embryo plant implanted in you and, and going through pregnancy. So this is not a cheap option at all. And there are organizations out there that are trying to make it easier for people to go down this road, especially for people who are suffering from medical conditions. Um, but it's still very costly. So people who do have the means to do it are able to, but people who may not have the money and still need these um, options, they unfortunately haven't been able to take advantage of the opportunity. Nicole Leonard's with me, healthcare reporter for Connecticut Public Radio, as we learn about this case before the state Supreme Court, uh, what happens to a frozen embryo when a couple divorces. Uh, you mentioned that there are contracts that a couple or a person may enter in with the fertility uh, treatment center. Tell us more about that. Yeah. I mean, when you go to a medical office, you have to sign a lot of papers, a lot and medical documents. We're all used to doing that. Um, so this is no different. But in this case, creating, um, you know, planning for the future and creating potential children, it, it's a much bigger um, life decision maybe than perhaps um you know, just signing for a service. So they create these contracts and um, they help people decide on what to do in the event of, say, one parent dies or if they do get divorced. Um, but they can be a little tricky. They're not maybe black and white. And so I actually talked to Catherine Kraschel, who is a reproductive law expert at Yale, um, and she had this to say about the contracts. When patients are signing a form with their medical provider, most of the time they're not necessarily contemplating these very profound issues of family formation and identity when we're thinking about people who object to their genetic material being used to create a human, um, perhaps without their consent. And that's very true when you're thinking about trying to start a family. You're not thinking about the repercussions if, if you're not together or um, if something were to happen to that genetic material because when you think you're signing a contract that it's going to be guaranteed. That's right. going to be there for you. And you're signing a contract maybe years before those circumstances come up if they ever do. So it, it's hard to really plan for those sort of the, the difficult situations. You hope they don't happen, but obviously we've seen that they do. And in your reporting, you found that there are other cases around the country related to uh, frozen embryos and whether they should be considered people or property. Tell us more about that. Yeah. I mean, these cases go back all the way to um, one of the first ones was in Tennessee back in the 90s um, when uh, cryopreservation was not as popular as it is today, but people still did it. Um, and it involved a couple who was divorcing and they were trying to figure out what would happen to this embryo. Um and some questions, one of the big questions that's come up in a lot of these cases is, well, how do we treat this embryo? Is it property like in a divorce settlement where you kind of just divide it um, like you would maybe other possessions? Or is it a person? Is it something that, you know, has the right? Does it have personhood rights um, or rights to be a child? Um, and so th those are the kind of arguments that were um, seeing play out in court. Now, what did the, some of the experts tell you as if uh, states were to have a law that gave personhood uh, status to an embryo? What kind of ramifications would that have, Nicole? It's it's you know, you think about it and you think one million frozen embryos in the United States. That's a lot of frozen embryos. Um, if even a state or even um, some advocacy groups and people want the federal government to uh, to make a law saying that embryos are 
you know, have personhood rights, that would mean that courts would be obligated to bring every single frozen embryo in the United States to term. And it might not even be with the parents that initially created the embryo because they may create five embryos and use three, have three healthy children. And then two of them, the court would have to say, well, these two need to be brought to living children. So um, and I actually... I did speak to a um, Dr. Louise King. She's a bioethicist at Harvard Medical School Center for Bioethics. Um, and she said this whole debate is actually more philosophical in nature, not a scientific one. And, and this is what she had to say about that. If you believe that, um, that life begins at conception, then you will see an embryo of any, just at, of any stage as being a fully human being. But then, of course, if that's true, um, then you've afforded moral status to an entity that doesn't have any other criteria except for being genetically related to other human beings. Now, when you say that you've been following other cases, uh, when you hear the bioethicist explain it in this way, it shows how how tricky it is for uh, states to uh, come up with a solution. So what have states done? What measure do they find for couples? Uh, I mean, it it is a gray area. um, And most courts and bioethicists do agree that while this embryo maybe doesn't have full personhood rights, it, it doesn't necessarily fall into the category also of property because that would be really equating it with something like a house or, you know, other things that get solved in a divorce settlement. So they really have decided that this does fall into a special category. And and because of that, they've used other means to try and solve these cases. So some states have upheld the Uh, contract. So they've said, if you have a contract agreement and this is what it says, this is what you need to stick to. Other times they've turned to a balancing test, which means they weigh the interests of both Mm -hmm. parents. So um, the big factor in a balancing test is if one parent, if this is their only and last chance to have a biologically related child. Um, And in this Connecticut case, uh, they did use a balancing test in a lower court. And um, the ex-husband who's fighting to preserve the embryo, he actually has several children from a previous marriage and also with the one child with his uh, ex-wife, Jennifer Bill Bow. So they determined that this is – his interest did not outweigh mm-hmm. his ex-wife's. And so they did rule in her favor. So that was the, tra- the lower court ruling in uh, defendant Jennifer Bill Bow's uh, favor. Now it's before the state Supreme Court. Um, any idea when uh, this will be resolved? I wish I I wish I knew. <laughs> Supreme Court cases just like the, at the highest level, they're tricky. We have no, you know, we don't know when they're going to come out with a decision. Um it could be months from now. And and on one hand, they could uh come out with this with a decision that sets the legal precedent for the state of Connecticut, which means their decision on this case will determine how future cases, future embryo possession cases are decided. Um they could also decide that, you know, enough evidence wasn't supported in the Supreme Court argument. They may, you know, throw it back down to a lower court. So we might not get that legal precedent. So Mm -hmm. we'll have to see if Connecticut, um, you know, figures out a way to decide the, the future, the rest of these cases in the future. And so this has never made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, but there are advocacy groups, including a pro-life uh, organizations, that would like to see this question before the... Certainly. And a lot of legal experts, including uh, Catherine Kaschel at Yale, she did note that um, 
you know, these types of cases are sort of sometimes lumped into other cases that currently are challenging reproductive rights. Um, And then we get sort of into some of the abortion debates about, you know, um, should abortion be legal and and why shouldn't it be illegal? Well, because uh, an embryo or a fetus should have full personhood rights. So we're kind of getting into that territory when we're talking about these cases going to the U.S. Supreme Court. Nicole Leonard, again, is healthcare reporter for WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio. You can go to our website at WNPR.org to read all of Nicole's uh, great reporting. Nicole, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, the College Board has come up with a new rating to help disadvantaged students. But the idea to include an adversity score has attracted plenty of criticism. What's your take? We're going to talk about that after the break. You can join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Just a reminder, our Coffee Break series continues tomorrow in Waterbury at the John Bale Book Company and Cafe. And we've been asking residents as we travel around the state what issue or story matters to them in their community. It's your chance to tell us more when we uh, head down to Waterbury. You can learn more about that event. Just check out our Where We Live's Facebook page, and we're going to be there at 11.30 a.m. tomorrow, again, at the John Bale Book Company and Cafe in Waterbury, Connecticut. Now, officials from the College Board, the nonprofit company that administers the SAT, have developed an adversity score that's meant to help college admissions accept more disadvantaged students without focusing on race. But the announcement has been met with skepticism. For more, joining us by phone, Nick Anderson. He covers higher education for The Washington Post. Nick, welcome to where we live. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So tell us more about the adversity score and, and really, you know, how would they calculate something like this? Yeah, so it's very interesting development. The College Board, which owns the SAT, um, has been thinking about how to help colleges consider the SAT score in the context of where the student comes from. They are testing out, and the, the emphasis here is on experiment. They're, they're experimenting with what they call a dashboard Uh, So the admissions officer would see on the dashboard a few things about the high school and the neighborhood to to show where this student is coming from and to help understand the SAT score that they're seeing for the student. Now, the dashboard would have, for instance, uh, the percentage of students who receive free or reduced-priced lunches at the school. It'll it'll show the... uh, distribution of SAT scores in the high school and whether this student's score is an outlier uh, or whether it's kind of clumped in with the rest of the scores for the SAT in that high school. And then very interestingly, and this is where all the attention is, they they have something called an overall disadvantage level. That's what's being described as an adversity score. And that's a number from 1 to 100 that is composed of two different things. Thing number one, is an analysis of the neighborhood through the census tract that the student lives in. Thing number two is an analysis of the high school that the student goes to through all the census tracts that go into that high school. So uh, if you have an adversity score of 50 uh, on this measure, that's about average. 
In fact, it is average. If you have a higher number than that, then you have more adversity. If you have a lower number of that, you have relatively more privilege. Now, what are the elements that go into this? So this, the College Board released to us on Friday the kinds of data that are, are being used to crunch the number. They include median family income from the neighborhood and the schools that uh, have these neighborhoods, percentage of households in the neighborhood that have poverty, um, percentage of households that have food stamps, percentage of families that are single parent families, uh, percentage of housing units in the neighborhood that are rental, rent as a percentage of income. You can see this is kind of standard demographic census stuff, but really interesting when you look at it in a granular way. So Nick, um, uh, I don't want to run out of time, but I wanted yeah. to ask, you know, a lot of people will hear this and think, you know, they'll question the timing. We, we know we've heard more college and uh -huh. universities aren't, are making the SAT optional. And then, of course, there's uh, the story about, right. well, if you're pretty wealthy, you can buy an, a, an ACT or SAT score for your kid to get into the college yep. of their choice. And so, you know, why is this being rolled out now? Well, it's, it's actually not being rolled out now. It's been tested for a, a couple of admission cycles, and it's expanding. Uh, the expansion is happening because the colleges that have tested it, I'll give you a, a few, for example. Uh, Yale has tested it. Florida State has tested it. Um, Georgia Tech has tested it. There were 50 colleges that tested it in the last cycle. Um, they seem uh, to like it. Uh, now, the, the reason they like it is that they, it gives them a, another way to look at the score, uh, the test score, that is. And it, it, if, you, if you come from a uh, school that has high disadvantage in a neighborhood that has high disadvantage, then, then an SAT score might look more impressive in that context. Mm. That's why they like it. Now, the College Board is also, let's, let's hasten to add, you mentioned the scandal about, I think you mentioned the scandal about Operation Varsity Blues and people buying test scores and stuff. The College Board is really looking to enhance the credibility of the test because the credibility of the test has been under attack. Mm. And so uh, when we think about, you just mentioned, you know, if yeah. you come from a poor neighborhood and they look at your score and, and think, uh, you know, maybe you've uh, been disadvantaged and that might yeah. weigh a little bit more. But what happens if you happen to live in a poor neighborhood, but your family is very well educated and you've had privilege? I mean, will that, how do they weigh that score? Maybe you get a better score, but maybe it doesn't really, it's not really relevant considering your background? Yeah, well, so it, uh, that's one of those tricky situations where uh, we don't know exactly what conversations and analyses are happening inside the admissions committees. <laughs> the admissions committees themselves are closed to the public, right, for probably good reasons in a lot of cases. But you've got uh, a situation here where the admissions committees themselves need to look very carefully at the whole application. And if they see a discrepancy, they need to look closer and see, well, what does that mean? And oftentimes, with, with a looking at um, the, the students' essays or looking at the students' um, uh, parental, the, the, the occupations of the parents that the students list on the application, you can start to see things pretty quickly, and then you can follow up and sort of get a sense for where the student is. Mm -hmm. So this, these adversity scores are meant uh, not to be uh, determinative 
but just to add a piece to the puzzle. That's what they say. Well, Nick Anderson, again, is a reporter for The Washington Post, uh, covers higher education. We've been learning more about the the College Board uh, rolling out this adversity score more broadly uh, in 2020 uh, to help uh, admissions uh, teams, uh, you know, accept uh, students uh, with more disadvantaged backgrounds. I wanted to, you know, transition to what we have here in Connecticut. Uh, Joining us is Kathy Megan, who covers education and child welfare for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, Kathy, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. So um, Connecticut, one of the few states where SATs are a requirement. Tell us how that happened. Right. Well, um, back in 2015 or so, uh, Connecticut was administrating administering its relatively new Smarter Balanced Standardized Test. And um, juniors were not happy with this, high school juniors, because um, the test was one more huge test they had to take in the spring in May. Um, and many of the juniors opted out, didn't show up for the test, um, which was a problem for Connecticut because they have to have 95% participating in the test or there's a problem with the feds. Um, so uh, legislators and others um, came up with this idea of using the SAT instead of um, the Smarter Balance test. And that was good for lots of reasons because legislators and educators felt that then um, if children, if kids took the SAT, some some kids who weren't thinking about college might say, hey, I did okay on that. I'll think about college. And they'd have one of the requirements for many college applications out of the way. So the state agreed and um, to use the SAT rather than the Smarter Balance Test for college juniors starting in 2016. Mm. Uh, so in Connecticut, uh, students can take the SAT for free. Right. But what about uh, test prep services? Because, you know, a lot of studies show, uh, you know, the wealthier a student uh, background is and the parents are able to pay for uh, these prep services, the higher their, their score is. So I'm just curious uh, how that correlates with making it mandatory here. Are all students getting that extra prep? Well, they, 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 they really aren't. I mean, um, they do have an option, the option to go on to Khan Academy online, which is an online free service um, to help prep them for the SAT. Um, some districts um, do offer some sort of SAT prep. Um, the districts uh, pay for it themselves. Or like, for instance, in East Hartford and Meriden, the Dalio Foundation um, funds some SAT prep. Um, but so, I mean, the, the preparatory programs are still kind of probably uneven. Uh, a child from a wealthier family could certainly afford a lot more prep than what's happening for um, a child from a family without as much in the way of resources. Now, I, I just happened to run this by a state official this morning who was saying that um, the test has changed since 2016. It used to be an aptitude test. Now it's based on what you learn in the classroom. So if you are paying attention in class, you really should be okay and theoretically not need that prep. But of course, I think as a lot of the test uh, programs will say and, and kids will say that their score went up 50 points or 75 points after they took an SAT score. So it may not be entirely fair. Now, Kathy, uh, what study have studies been done? I'm sure they have of when you look at a score, you know, how well does that uh, show whether a student will be successful in college? Well, that's another point, um, which is that it, it, it doesn't track that well, um, according to, uh, you know, studies that have been done. Um, a a kid's performance in college is much more related to how they did um, grade-wise in high school than how they did on the SAT. And that's part of why so many colleges, including many in Connecticut, um, Trinity, Wesleyan, Quinnipiac, have made the SAT optional, um, which is probably part of why the SAT has come up with this adversity 
score to try to to try to convince colleges that hey, it's worth looking at what um, what this test says about your applicants. There's relevance here, um, but many question that. Well, Kathy Megan again is uh, covers education and child welfare for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and giving us uh, some context of how the SAT is uh, being used here in our state. Thank you very much for having me. Also with us today was Nick Anderson, who covers higher education for the Washington Post. We're going to link out some stories uh, at where we live. Uh, Nick, uh, for people who have uh, questions about this new adversity score on the SAT. But Nick, we thank you for giving us some of your time today. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This note, tomorrow uh, we want to focus uh, on the show on a very personal uh, relationship uh, between uh, a son and mother, especially when uh, Donald Collins uh, first told his mom he was transgender. She wasn't quite sure what the word meant. So tomorrow we're going to sit down with Donald and his mother, Mary Collins, to talk about how they rebuilt the relationship. It's the focus of their book, At the Broken Places, A Mother and Trans Son, pick up the pieces. That conversation tomorrow. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Thanks to uh, Kyone Wolf and Carmen Baskoff. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live.